You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. 2020 was a deadly year for dialysis patients. Diwa Eldeeb is a reporter for ProPublica. She combed through federal data on pandemic deaths in 2020 and found that almost 20% more dialysis patients died in the first year of the pandemic than in the previous year. Eldeeb says the increased death rate was so significant that the overall number of people receiving dialysis shrank for the first time in nearly 50 years. The numbers were staggering. I had no idea until I started doing this reporting just how deadly and devastating the pandemic was to dialysis patients. Patients on dialysis have end-stage renal disease, which means that their kidneys are so damaged that they can't filter toxins or excess fluid from their body. So they need to go to dialysis to continue living. Uh, They need either dialysis or they need kidney transplants. Because dialysis is a life-saving treatment, and it's so critical to their survival. They have to go in three times a week, and they often go for three to four hours at a time. The problem is these patients are already immunocompromised. So every time they leave their house, they're putting themselves at risk. And what the research has shown us is that many of these patients take public transportation, medical, you know, van transportation to get to the facilities. They, once they're there, they sit in a large room with other people. They're in this enclosed space for three to four hours. So it's, you know, it's putting vulnerable patients in a more vulnerable position. Eldeeb also found that despite the increased risk, many states failed to prioritize vaccinations for dialysis patients or offer vaccinations at dialysis centers. Glenn Hayashida is the president of the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii. Under his watch, the foundation invested in testing early on in the pandemic, partnering with the state to provide expanded testing sites. Hayashida spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman pote about the foundation's work over the last two years. Hayashida felt it was important to take a proactive stance to protect dialysis patients as rates of kidney disease are higher in Hawaii than the national average. In more recent studies, it's anywhere between 26 and 30 percent higher than the U.S. average. Everyone asks why. There's a lot more research that needs to be done, especially here in Hawaii. But part of it is genetic in the sense that it It appears that kidney disease affects the ethnic minority population in greater severity than the white population. That's across the board. Um, So if if you're on the mainland, for instance, it impacts the Native American population the highest. Close behind is the African-American population and then Hispanic population. But if you look at the composition here in Hawaii, we're a population of ethnic minorities, and, and I think that's one of the greatest reasons why it's impacting Hawaii more severely than the, the mainland. And then my question is, how did you and your organization have to pivot roughly two years ago to address the new concerns of COVID-19 under the umbrella of the work that you do on behalf of people who are fighting kidney disease? Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, why is the National Kidney Foundation doing COVID testing? And really, it goes back to, and I, I don't think people will remember this, but they can look it up. Um, and back in March of 2020, one of the first reported deaths related to COVID was a kidney dialysis patient. That raised a lot of eyebrows and concerns and fears, quite honestly, about wow, is this affecting only dialysis patients or the greater population? What's going on? And when COVID came to Hawaii and first impacted Hawaii, I wasn't on calls with the dialysis centers. And our concern at that point in time was, how are we going to protect the patients within the dialysis centers and keep them separate from the non-COVID patients? We said, okay, each dialysis providers, because Hawaii has two, will take the responsibility of having one of their clinics being where COVID-positive patients will be dialyzed. So that was the solution. And then I asked a real innocent question, quite honestly, and I just said, how are these patients getting to the dialysis centers? And silence. (laughs) 
and I knew we had a problem. So situation was that they, they responded well in the same way that they usually come. And that is the handy van, Uber, Lyft, family members. So I said, well, we just addressed the whole issue about protecting non-COVID patients in dialysis centers. But once they leave, the COVID positive patients are exposing the rest of the community. And the National Kidney Foundation knew of people, and one in particular, he actually owned Kiave Adventures. Uh, That's Makani Christensen. And he had a fleet of 10 vans. Basically, at that time, Waikiki was shut down. The state was shut down. So I talked to him and said, well, would you be interested if we were to able to get this program going and funded, would you be interested in providing transportation for COVID positive patients so that they could get to dialysis? And he says, that's great idea. I mean, it'll keep my employees working. I can keep them. I could use the vans. We can be helping the community. And so he jumped on board right away. So the challenge right then and there was really how we're going to find funding for this, because it was very costly proposition in terms of getting his vans insured, operational. He had to retrofit them. And so uh, the Hawaii Community Foundation actually stepped up. And the department, uh, state departments, um, the Office of Aging stepped up and they provided funding for this, this mode of transportation. And, and we did that for several months. Um, and during that period of time, even this, even people um, outside of dialysis called us and said, um, can you provide transportation to, um, in other areas? And so we started to do some of that until I think there was recognition within the general community that people with other medical needs need to get through their appointments as well. And so the Department of Health and uh, other entities within the state really got together to establish that mode of transportation for that purpose. And eventually, the dialysis patients were able to use that mode of transportation. But certainly we were one the first, if not the first, to recognize we, we need to get these patients over to, um, to the treatment safely, as well as protecting the community. Looking at the pandemic in terms of patients with kidney disease or patients who need dialysis, there's the first concern where these individuals are likely immunocompromised, and so any type of infection is going to be potentially more detrimental than it would be for another person. But then what you're all, it also seems like you're talking about is the pandemic required these large-scale infrastructure changes in how we deliver health care to these patients who do have regular appointments. Now that we're two years into this pandemic, going on year three, and we have seen ups and downs in terms of our hospitals, other consequences like blood shortages because donors are getting sick, staff is getting sick. Have there been other consequences in that kind of secondary zone specifically for the people that you seek to assist? I think one of the things that we that research has found, again, very limited because of time, is that those affected by COVID, let's say they have no history of kidney failure or kidney disease, they have COVID, and there is a percentage of them, fairly large, that actually have some residual kidney damage as a result of COVID. And that's part of the reason why we got into testing as well. We, we needed to identify these patients early, early, um, in, in great numbers. Because if we didn't, then all we're doing is adding more and more people to the list of people who have kidney disease or kidney complications. That was Glenn Hayashida, president and CEO of the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about why it has stepped up during the pandemic to help diabetic patients and the greater community. We'll have links to the foundation's resources as well as the ProPublica story on our website later today.
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we take a spin back to the top of the 1976 pop charts, revisiting this popular song. That was Afternoon Delight, which was named 20th Sexiest Song of All Time by Billboard magazine in 2010. The band that recorded it was started by married couple Bill Danoff and Taffy Nybert. And they added two other vocalists, John Carroll and Margot Chapman, who was born here in the islands. The group then morphed into the Starland Vocal Band before recording Afternoon Delight. The new lineup was a success. The single from their self-titled debut album skyrocketed with AM radio airplay and became a number one hit in the United States. For today's quiz, we want to know where in our state Margot Chapman was born. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. It was a gathering that had been pandemic postponed. This weekend, Chinese veterans received their due after four tries. Those who had been in line to receive the Congressional Gold Medal finally were acknowledged for their service to our country. General uh, Charles Flynn, commanding General U.S. Army Pacific, was a keynote speaker and had this to say. Chinese American veterans from World War II were model citizens. Uh, They helped rebuild a post-war Hawaii. Many were no longer with us. But their impacts went well beyond the Second World War, and their legacy lives on today in this very room. We are grateful to have their sons and daughters here today to share their individual and their amazing stories of extraordinary service. And so, in introducing the Congressional Medal of Gold Medal, our Chinese-American World War II veterans from Hawaii can now take their rightful place in the pantheon of American heroes. Retired Army Major General Robert Lee shared that minority groups played a large part in World War II. African Americans and those of Japanese, Filipino, and Chinese ancestry are owed the credit for their part in the war effort. Twenty surviving uh, Chinese veterans were on hand yesterday, as well as the families of those veterans who were not. People don't realize... uh how dire the situation was for the United States of America back in 1941 and even the couple of years before. So why do we single out these groups to present the Congressional Gold Medal? Because for the third time in our nation's history, there was a good possibility that the United States of America was never going to exist again. We needed to marshal all 16 million Americans to fight in World War II in the Pacific and Atlantic in Europe in order to uh, to defeat the enemies of uh, Germany and the Empire of Japan to to win. But the other reason for singling out these groups is that uh, they had to fight to join in order to fight for America. Uh, there are so many barriers that prevented them from just say raising their right hand. I'm going to go. Number one, forty percent of the Chinese Americans. Uh, that served were not even citizens of the United States because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prevented them from being citizens of the United States. 
but yet they thought that this country was worth fighting for and um, joining to fight for America. And, you so, know, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Well, so so the Chinese-American World War II veterans, similar to the Nisei and uh, the Filipino-American uh, soldiers in World War II, Tuskegee Airmen serving in segregated units, these units had to go through some extraordinary steps to even join up and fight for America. So really, we honor their uh, their loyalty, their bravery, their, their, their service? Their sustained uh, patriotism during the very dark days of uh, World War II, and uh, with the commitment that uh, the, this country was going to succeed in, in the defeating the enemies, uh, the unconditional surrender. So this World War II generation saved the United States of America and saved the world. So how many medals did we uh, pass out yesterday? 175, with all the delays and the, the recognition and then the dealing with COVID, delaying the scheduled uh, presentation four times. So many of the living veterans, easily, I, I would say all of them, were over 95 years old. Uh, we had one, one at 100 years old. And they're really uh, lucky to be there on uh, wheelchairs and walkers. And there was one, uh, Dr. Alton Wong, boy, you know, I would aspire to be like him, just walking around, no cane, no walker, no wheelchair. Yes, I saw him I on TV. He, yes. I saw him on uh-huh. TV last night, and you could tell right. what a strong spirit. Yes, yes. We had over 800 in attendance for 175 medals, and our, our objective was to to cause family reunions, people flying in from uh, all over the United States, uh, to to see their uh, loved ones, uh, their their father receiving the Congressional Gold Medal, so families bought purchased one a complete table, two, three, four, four complete tables, so that the generations of these Chinese Americans could see Grandpa and Great Grandpa get it, to get the award and understand why they received this award. We closed the ceremony with recognizing Hung Wai Ching, Chinese American. He was a member of the Territorial Guard, and it was awarded to uh, his granddaughter, Ashley Wang. So uh, Hung Wai Ching did receive the Congressional Gold Medal for being a Chinese-American uh, veteran. However, I called Baba Tanabe to the, to the stage because Baba and I served as the co-chairs for the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal Award over 10 years ago. It was truly an oversight on our part not to give the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal Award to an individual that was given. Everybody basically concedes that Hung Wai Ching, with his enthusiasm and his connections and ties to the military government in the state of Hawaii, convinced the authorities not to put Japanese Americans residing in the territory of Hawaii into internment camps like the Japanese Americans on the mainland. So we thought that uh, it was worth the, the dual award, and we were very fortunate to have in attendance Governor George Ariyoshi, a World War II veteran himself, and a recipient of the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal. So I presented the Chinese American Congressional Gold Medal to Ashley, and Governor Ariyoshi presented the Nisei Congressional Gold Medal to Ashley. So that was the unique close uh, for the award presentation ceremony. So it's just an acknowledgement of the tremendous effort by people behind the scenes, uh, you know, who help have a hand in our history Mm -hmm. today and the outcome, uh, you know, following uh, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Correct. Correct. How, how really the people in the territory of Hawaii work work together. I tell folks in, in this process, I've learned a lot about post-war Hawaii history and, and a bit uh, during, during the war, that in a way, I think Hawaii was very fortunate during that time to have a military governor because the military governor assigned from the Pentagon, his number one mission from a military perspective was to defend the Hawaiian Islands from an expected invasion from the Empire of Japan. So he came in ready to follow the orders of the War Department to place all Japanese Americans under his jurisdiction into internment camp. And you see um, 
governors in California and along the West Coast. They were elected governors, and they fell to the hysteria of that those times and collaborated and endorsed placing Japanese-Americans uh, into internment camps in the mainland uh, U.S. But having a military governor with the number one mission of defending the islands, he was probably told that, well, you know, like internment camps on the mainland, you add them up with the size of the Japanese-American population in the territory of Hawaii, at least you needed 50,000 soldiers for, for guard duty. Where was he going to have 50,000 soldiers? Additionally, if you did have the 50,000 soldiers, shouldn't you be sending them to the war in the Pacific versus being prison guards? So he was convinced and then he came in predetermined, placed Japanese-Americans in internment camps and did an about-face. That was General Emmons, at that time the military governor of the territory of Hawaii. And this month is a big month because it's the anniversary of that executive order the, uh, that triggered the mm-hmm. internment. Incarceration, yes. incarceration, yes. And, you know, so I guess it's fitting that we just kind of pause and, and think mm-hmm. about yep. where we've come and uh, the politics today, the political climate, and, and where mm-hmm. we need to go. Would you permit me to say there's another uh, situation that we need to correct, an injustice that we need to correct? the plight of the Filipino-Americans. Yes. Again, people forget that the Philippines was the territory of the United States. General Douglas MacArthur was the commander of American forces in the Philippines. American forces included Filipino soldiers in the scouts, 1st and 2nd Filipino regiments. And when the Japanese invaded and MacArthur says, I'm going to head down to Australia and regroup, and says, I'll be, I shall return. He directed the guerrilla fighters, the, and the, the, you, you have to consider them Filipino-Americans, you know, in the, in the territory of, of, of the Philippines. Asked them to fight for America, be guerrilla fighters behind enemy lines, because you are United States Army soldiers, and uh, you will have veterans' uh, benefits. And there were promises made. The promises made, especially by a general. Mm-hmm. You know, normally the, 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 the word is good. And uh, in 1947, uh, Congress voted the Rescission Act to not make the Filipino soldiers that fought on the side of the United States aren't U.S. Army veterans. That needs to change. That was Major General Robert Lee. We were talking about the ceremony held yesterday to honor Chinese-American veterans who were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. The event had been on hold for several years because of the pandemic, and finally, families were able to gather to receive the award. Support for HPR comes from Royal Hawaiian Center, celebrating Lunar New Year with more than 90 shopping and dining experiences featuring Tim Ho Wan, Salvatore Ferragamo, and P.F. Chang's. Open daily, royalhawaiiancenter.com. What makes people want to exercise? How long does it take for that boost of serotonin, the happy hormone, to kick in? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an exercise physiologist about the ins and outs of your favorite activity and how regular exercise might save your life someday. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. You know, there's been a lot of talk at uh, this session to help working families. And one way, some say, to do that is through what's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. HBR reporter Casey Harlow tells us that that credit is set to go away at the end of this year, but there are efforts to extend it. Good morning. 
Morning. Yes, there are several uh, bills that are in the state legislature that would either extend or make this tax credit permanent. And just a little bit of background, this is the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, as uh, these accountants and budget (laughs) policy people love to use acronyms for. Uh, But this has been around for decades on the federal government side of things since 1975. It's been primarily targeted to help low to moderate income households with children kind of be able to get more of their money back, keep more of their money uh, to save or to even uh, just expand on the necessities of everyday life. Um, And I spoke with Will White, who's the executive director of the Hawaii Budget and Policy Center. And if you're just curious, like, who exactly is qualified for this, uh, this is kind of a brief summary of how you can qualify. The income eligibility, I think the max income you can have at the federal level is... $57,414. That's the maximum income for married filing jointly. So the income threshold really kind of goes up the more children you have in your household. So, for example, someone filing is single with no children, the max income that they could have is $21,430. And as you alluded to earlier, like the state – well, first of all, the federal requirements – are the same as the state requirements. Uh, so the state uh, income uh, eligibility is roughly about the same as the federal eligibility. Uh, but like you said earlier, uh, this program will sunset at the end of the year. It was enacted in 2017 and started as a pilot program. Lawmakers were considering about extending it in 2020, but of course the pandemic happened, so everything kind of but, uh, went on hold. But there is a resurgence in an effort to help the working class families and low-income families, particularly, especially with the minimum wage bill that's being considered uh, and with these uh, tax credits as well. Uh, And White says studies have shown that the credit is an effective tool to help these families uh, rise out of poverty over time. But uh, one of the main things that they're calling for uh, as a change is to make it refundable. Right now, the program is not refundable. And here's White uh, explaining what exactly that means. In a situation where you're getting a non-refundable tax credit, what you could use that credit for is to basically reduce your tax liability, which is great, right? If you, if you have tax liability, that can help keep some money in your pocket. However, when it comes to the workers with the lowest incomes, the EITC here at the state level really isn't doing as much as it, as it could. Um, and that's largely because lower income workers tend to have little or no tax liability. So basically, you know, say someone qualifies for the EITC, they may be able to, if they have the tax liability uh, that would fit within this criteria for the uh, credit, uh, roughly about 80% of that would be covered while the extra 20% kind of goes to someone else. That household isn't going to get that extra 20%. But if it was refundable, that household would be able to get that extra 20 in a form of a check uh, at the what after they file, so local advocates are saying that uh, making this credit refundable will bring more quality to the state's tax system. And here's Gavin Thornton, uh, executive director of the Hawaii Appleseed Center for Law and Economic Justice. Uh, he says that you know lower income households have more of a burden when it comes to these taxes. Hawaii's lowest income families who pay a lot out over the course of the year for general excise tax which they pay every time they go to the grocery store, every time they pay their rent. So they pay a lot of taxes that way, but they might not have a big income tax liability because they're not earning enough. Making the credit refundable means that they'll get a check in the mail, even if their income tax liability isn't as high as the credit they'll receive. So it helps cover the GET tax that they're paying throughout the course of the year. The folks that will benefit most from this credit are the communities that have been most oppressed by our current economic system. So 18% of the people receiving the EITC in Hawaii are Pacific Islander, 12% Native Hawaiian, 9% white, 8% Filipino. And so last week, two of these bills were uh, discussed on the Senate side of things. Uh, Senate Ways and Means Committee deferred action on it. Uh, One of those bills was proposed by the governor, which would extend this credit for another five years. The program stands as is. 
The other one would make the credit permanent, but also has something in the bill that would raise the capital gains uh, tax, which uh, met, was met with some opposition, um, mainly because from the Chamber of Commerce, saying that entrepreneurs would be affected uh, with their investments. Uh, however, the other bills on the House side of things have yet to be discussed. Okay, so no hearings yet then? Uh, not yet. They have been referred to committees, but uh, waiting for those committees to take that up. Right, okay. All right, well, the... Appreciate you tracking it. Yeah. We have been talking with HPR's Casey Harlow about the Earn Income Tax Credit. To read his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, we talk tea with Honolulu Civil Bee. For our reality check, we bring in reporter Thomas Heaton, who covers agriculture issues. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So, yeah, uh, I found your article really interesting uh, as I was reading it this weekend because, you know, we, you do hear uh, about mamaki tea, but we're hearing more about it. Yes, of course. I think many of us might be uh, acquainted with shaka tea, um, whether that's on visits to 7-Eleven or anywhere else. Um, they're becoming more popular on shelves. And yes, um, mamaki is becoming more and more popular. And I think that um, perhaps proof of that was some recent news on Friday that shaka tea, the, this um, blended mamaki iced tea uh, company based out of Hilo, was acquired by King's Hawaiian. Yes, so I mean, it really obviously, seems as though it's getting popular, more and more popular. Yeah, they saw some value there. Uh, so tell us more about mamaki tea. Yes, so mamaki tea is um, one. You know, it's the contemporary use of mamaki, which is a endemic plant here in Hawaii. Uh, it was actually originally used uh, not for its, not for tea so much as it was used for kapa. It was mixed with sap um, and made into cloth. So, of course, it was of great utility to um, Kanaka Māori and the original uh, Polynesian settlers of Papa'i um, to, you know, help them uh, get by in this, this new land. Um, but it is also used and kind of prized for its green tea-like uh, qualities. It's a, a therapeutic kind of tea. Um, it's caffeine-free, uh, and in the realm of herbal teas, which we all know are quite popular, it's a natural fit and um, it's, it could be a potential boon for Hawaii because this is the only place it grows. Well, I was really surprised uh, to learn that, you know, your story talks about how it could become one of Hawaii's biggest export crops and I about fell off my chair when I saw that it, it goes for a much higher price than coffee. Yes, yes, it certainly does. Um, it's, it's a rather large difference there. I think uh, retail, you're looking at about $150 per pound. Um, obviously, that varies, but part of that, I would believe, is you know, uh, it's it's just it's a relatively new uh, plant for business people to be looking at. So, of course, those processes and stuff like that um, aren't as streamlined as perhaps they are for coffee or for the global tea market. So, you know, these are very, very well-established kind of uh, um, businesses that work with them as commodities, whereas uh, Mamaki is kind of in the earlier stages. But this is kind of where some some, um, conflicts arise. Well, I I was surprised to learn that Mamaki has a high level of calcium, so that kind of sets it apart from a lot of other teas. Yes, I found that interesting as well. That's from a 2009 uh, University of Hawaii study. Um, but there is a lot more work to be done in terms of the research needed. Um, USDA gave a specialty block grant to University of Hawaii uh, just last year to see whether they might be able to find more high-yielding um, plants to really kind of make the most of this. But this is kind of where... Um, some conflict arises because uh, Mamaki is part of the canon of La'au, Lapa'au, you know, the uh, Native Hawaiian medicinal kind of uses. Uh, so it's alongside things like other, 
which I've also written about. Um, mm-hmm. So it's seen as a medicinal plant. You know, it, it, the, the fruit of the plant is used as a mild laxative. It's used to cure thrush. And then the tea is like green tea, you know. It's, it's just a good staver off, staver of um, of um, potential, you know, ills. Um, but having said all of that, because it is endemic, it's been here for a long time, it is within that canon, it carries a lot of spirituality and importance to uh, native Hawaiians. So there is a bit of conflict there. They they would like to see the plant not exploited, um, and they fear that, you know, uh, it could be denigrated by commodification. So there is um, a lot of kind of concern there in, in the sense that we need to be making sure that we're using it responsibly, we need to make sure that we are respecting the plant and the spirituality so as to, you know, um, respect the aina um, and ali'i and, you know, look after this plant and, um, yeah, respect it. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, yeah, they're protective. It's only found here. Yeah, well, of course. And it's the other interesting thing about it is that you know, well, coffee and tea um, have been cultivated for a very long time, and uh, mamaki has been typically harvested from the wild. So, as you know, there, there's a there's a teething period there, right? It's how do you take a plant that's predominantly grown in the wild and effectively domesticate it? So, there, there's some issues there, and that might also relate to the the costs. All right. Well, interesting article. But thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you very much. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Read his story at civilbeat.org. Earlier in the show, we revisited the One Wonder hit, Afternoon Delight, a song that catapulted the Starland vocal band into the international spotlight. Writing on the success of their 1976 self-titled album, the group was nominated for a multiple of Grammys, winning for Best New Artist and Best Arrangement for Voices in 1977. The vocal harmonies were sung by married couple Bill Danoff and Taffy Nybert, pianist vocalist John Carroll and vocalist Margot Chapman. The band went on to host a variety show, a TV show called the Starland Vocal Band Show, which aired on CBS in the summer of 1977. It uh, featured a then-unknown David Letterman. The band eventually broke up, and more recently, Afternoon Delight was introduced to new audiences when it was used prominently in films like Anchorman and Good Will Hunting. As for the group's Hawaii Connection, Band member Margot Chapman was born right here in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1957, which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We had no winners. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the evening part-time program at the William S. Richardson School of Law, accepting both the GRE and LSAT for admissions. Information and application at law.hawaii.edu. On this week's On the Media, the pitched cries to pull books from school libraries and curricula are for... Who exactly? It's not about the kids. It's about creating such havoc in public schools that they're able to say, why are we paying tax money to this institution that isn't doing its job? Meet the parents on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Diamond Head Theater, presenting Steel Magnolias, a comedy drama about the bond among a group of Southern women, as delicate as magnolias but as tough as steel. On now, tickets at diamondheadtheater.com. It was eight years ago that the alarm sounded when the military first reported finding an invasive species at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, specifically the coconut rhinoceros beetle. Since then, there's been a joint effort to set large black traps across Oahu to monitor its spread. Teams funded through the University of Hawaii's Research Corporation check them regularly. State agriculture officials say they are using new tools to try and curb the spread and treat the infestations through treatments of infected trees and green waste. 
we met with entomologist Darcy Oishi out the, at the um, Pearl City Urban Garden to get a first-hand look at the latest tools in this battle against the beetle. Most visible are shipping containers that are being used to gas-infested plant material. Oishi manages pest control programs for the state. So, Darcy, describe what's going on out here. So what we're doing is we're unloading material that we had treated with a, pes- a fumigant pesticide to kill coconut rhinoceros beetle that may have been infesting this material. So it's larger whole chunks, so we have an easier time. It's still at risk, but we want to ensure that all beetles are killed on in it before we dispose of it. And so this process, how long have we been using this? This is one of our more recent techniques that have been developed. The University of Hawaii was engaged in research to to test various options using pesticides to to find ways to kill the beetle in all its life stages. And this was basically implemented uh, about September of of last year, of 2021. And and so what we're doing is we're having more options now to kill coconut rhinoceros beetle in all of the different habitat that it occupies uh, so we can begin reducing uh, the core pressure in, in terms of numbers that we're seeing. And so what we're looking at are some shipping containers and there's uh, huge sacks full of uh, green waste, I guess, and that's where you've got essentially a little chamber and then you, you, you put in the pesticide. Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a pesticide applicator inject the fumigant into it it remains in the chamber, and then once the system is done and we're, it's safe for us to aerate, then the staff can then go in, remove the, infest, the, the treated material, and then we'll then dispose of it. So in this case, what we have are, are large pieces of fronds, parts of the, the trunk of trees, a material that otherwise we would have to either grind, compost, or, or burn. So all of which takes time. So this process is a much more rapid in terms of treating for coconut rhinoceros beetle and, and killing, killing as many beetles as possible. And so what's the other treatment, your uh, other tool in your toolbox? So the most significant one is, and, and we've been using this for a number of years, it was, it was uh, based upon research by the University of Hawaii, we're doing trunk injections of systemic inses- insecticides. And the theory there is the systemic insecticide will go into the crown of the tree where the beetles will feed. When they feed on it, there's enough pesticide there to kill the beetles. And so we we make sure it's safe for pollinators. We make sure there's no flowers or fruit on the tree. So when we do this, and what we've seen is reduction in the population in areas where we've deployed this on a landscape level. So we've, we've been really pushing this for the last year and a half, and, and we're gaining momentum where we've got um, several thousand trees that have been inje- injected now, and we're seeing reduction in the, pop, in the numbers of beetles in the areas where we do these treatments. And it's been a while. I mean, you know, several years ago, you know, they were discovered on, on base, and the military was doing what it could to knock those trees down and, and, uh, and get rid of the population over there. Since then, we have traps all over the island. Um, Correct. Do you know what the assessment is? I mean, how widespread uh, is it? I mean, the total area of infested that's infested with coconut rhinoceros beetle has unfortunately increased. And in some of our hot zone areas, the population density is also quite high. But we still have an opportunity for success because with the work of the university and, and other partners, we've identified a, a number of tools that we, we are beginning to employ to really knock down these populations. And the department is looking at developing basically green waste management plans for Oahu to really manage the CRB populations and to get rid of these satellite populations that spring up almost always associated with the, the movement of green waste. And, and so if we can get that under control, then the team effort can focus on knocking down the core beetle population with all of these new tools that we've developed over the past eight years. 
And is there an area that you were seeing higher counts of well, CRB? Basically, we're in one of those areas right now. The, the greater Waiava area is one of our hot spots. There's a lot of good breeding material. We, we have the right environmental conditions. We have some growing hot spots over in Kunia, Mililani area. Unfortunately, they're, they're, we're seeing spikes in the population in, in these areas. But again, the core goal of the department right now is to minimize these outbreaks outside of these areas so we can fully implement the tools and techniques to to reduce the core population numbers. The setup that you've got here, the urban, uh, uh, urban garden center here in Pearl City, it's just a kind of a good location? It's a, it's a good central location. We have our, the partnership between the university and the department allows us to set up our equipment and, and facilities basically. And, and, and it's a good central staging area for the wild, at least for the wild of a region to really get things moving and, and tackling the problems that are existing right now with, with this beetle. And we did have a team, I think it was, uh, uh, I don't know if it's through the RCUH, that was hiring uh, teams that would go out and check the traps. Are we still doing that? It, that is still being done. It's still a RCUH project. Uh, the university is receives uh, the bulk of the money from the USDA, and other sources also fund the coconut rhinoceros beetle response, including the Navy. And so we have field crews like you're seeing. Their purpose are not just to check traps, but to oversee the treatment of the green waste uh, and, and the breeding material to really knock down these populations. And then what's the Navy doing on their property? The Navy really employed the first comprehensive green waste management plan. So uh, basically, an independent city within the county of Honolulu uh, developed a green waste management plan, implemented it, and, and through that, we, we've seen huge successes in terms of reducing the core population of coconut rhinoceros beetle, along with their programs to, to basically manage the green waste that they are producing in a quick and timely fashion. So they're burning material and they're composting material to, to really keep ahead of the beetle, which as you know, exploits this decaying green waste. And then uh, as far as the other trees it's attacking, I mean, it's, it, it really likes coconut trees, but if the coconut trees aren't around, what else does it attack? Oh, uh, another favorite is fan palms, which include our endemic lolu palms, and date palms, which most of those are on base, and manila palms will also be hit. And in cases, as the population increases, what we'll see, and, and we've seen this in the Waiava area it, and, and reports from Guam, we'll see them attack things like banana, papaya, soft trees, uh, breadfruit, will all get hit. And, and this is where the populations really are out of control. And we're on that borderline in some of the areas like Waiava, but we've, we've knocked down some of the population a bit where I'm not as worried about those those kinds of effects right now. Are you still discouraging people moving like mulch around? Because I know you, you were doing that early on. Uh, it, it's still one of the primary means of spread, really. And this is what some of the rules and regulations that the department is looking at deploying in, in the hopefully in the near future to control the population is to to Im impose some rules and regulations on the movement of really breeding material for the coconut rhinoceros. The military has been engaging in more control of green waste on their properties in, in joint, joint, base, joint region Marianas. And the University of Guam has really been pursuing a comprehensive look at biocontrol. At this point, these are our best tools. The so the full suite of tools we have are pesticides that we're injecting in the trees, we're, in, we're using fumigation uh, in these chambers. We're beginning to look at drone applications of crown drenches. That's an ongoing research project of the university. We have a vacuum steam system that helps basically cook breeding material that we can't burn or compost. Composting is another tool where we can use 
the, the natural decay of, of the, the material and the temperatures that we reach to kill the beetle. And then there's just burning infested material. Uh, but really, the, the ideal thing is if we can manage our green waste properly, we can manage the beetle populations. That was Darcy Oishi, Biological Control Program Chief for the State Department of Agriculture. He was talking about the efforts to manage the CRB, the coconut rhinoceros beetle, which attacks coconut trees and other palms. This month happens to be Invasive Species Month, and throughout February we are spotlighting efforts to control alien pests. For links on who to call, check our website later today. That is it for us today. Tomorrow, we talk historic preservation and why the state needs your input. Got a story about a culturally significant site in your neighborhood? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard on, on our show today? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.